Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9. With available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults. With zero to 60 speed that thrills you one minute. And available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to the Science, Technology, and Society channel on the New Books Network. My name is John Traphagen, and I'm the host of this channel. I'm also a professor in the Department of Religious Studies and the Program in Human Dimensions of Organizations at the University of Texas at Austin. Today, I am delighted to welcome Dr. Valerie Olson to talk about her recent book, Into the Extreme, U.S. Environmental Systems and Politics Beyond Earth, which was published in 2018 by the University of Minnesota Press. Professor Olson, thank you for joining me on the SDS channel. Thank you, John. I'm glad to be here. Uh, I'll begin with a little background about Dr. Olson. Um, She is an associate professor of anthropology at the University of California, Irvine, and specializes in environmental anthropology. Dr. Olson received her PhD in anthropology from Rice University and has been a professor at UC Irvine since 2012. Her book is a fascinating exploration of the ways in which outer space contributes to and helps to socially construct the scope and scale of natural and social environments. Drawing on several years of research at NASA work sites, ranging from astronaut training programs to life science labs, Dr. Olson examines how U.S. experts imagine the solar system as the container of life and as a site of new forms of technical and political environmental control. I'll admit to our listeners that I found the book so interesting when I first read it that I assigned it in the class that I'm teaching right now on culture and entrepreneurial ecosystems. Uh, My my students have not gotten to it yet. That's the next book on their list. Uh, But we'll come back and talk to that topic related to uh, entrepreneurial ecosystems a little bit later in the interview. I'd like to begin our conversation by asking you uh, what led to um, what led you to develop a program of ethnographic research at NASA and how did you come to be interested in the idea of environmental systems in relation to outer space and kind of a, a secondary uh, question related to that is I I'm curious about the process of conducting field work at NASA how did that work um, I, I found in some of my own research that at times, um, natural scientists can, and engineers are a little bit resistant to being studied by social scientists. And I'm, I'm wondering if the, anything like that arose for you and your work. Yeah, John, thanks for asking that, uh, because it, it is an interesting story about how I got led into NASA. Um, so I really was I started at Rice University as a graduate student with a completely different project. My project was to study the beginnings of evidence-based medicine in Mexico. And I was just attending Rice University. And in 2003, uh, the shuttle disaster, the Columbia shuttle disintegrated over the skies of Texas, um, having had uh, some damage to the system early, early on in its launch. And I was absolutely 
fascinated and drawn into the reaction of people in the city and realizing I'm in Space City. I'm going to school in Space City. I wonder, as I wondered as a grad student, I wondered if anybody had done any ethnographic work at NASA. And it turns out that there had been anthropologists at NASA working at NASA, helping NASA with some of its cultural uh, uh, psychology and social psychology projects. But no one had actually been let in to do any ethnographic work. So I decided to do a course project that was just taking a very simple question and seeing how far I could get into NASA with it, which was how do outer space physicians work with the human body in an environment that is completely non-standard? So it is not an earthly environment. The uh, effects on the human body are so extreme and so catastrophic that the idea of just working on a normal human body and keeping it well is absolutely impossible. Astronauts are are environmentally impacted in ways that that uh, go well beyond the, the normal understandings of pathology on Earth. And so, I really went in with an environmental question. It was more of an environmental medicine question. And I got in to NASA because. People there were interested in me as an anthropologist. I found a lot of civil servants that really wanted to talk about what was done at NASA. And I also did something that anthropologists often do, which is I traded expertise for access. So uh, this is my third career before I was uh, an anthropologist. I worked as a medical research project manager at two campuses in the UC system. And I was a long-time research project developer and uh, manager. And so they needed some help with that at NASA in the, in the behavioral health arm of the uh, space medicine branch at NASA. And I went in as an intern. And in exchange for that, I was given extraordinary access to, to NASA. And I found, uh, I found some curiosity and some resistance to being studied at NASA, but I think that was overcome by the what I found also to be the case, which is people really wanted to tell their stories and really wanted to talk about their devotion to this project of human spaceflight. And I, as I got into it, then I at, at Rice we were very interested in how you could design anthropological research that would include or take into account different kinds of spaces, different kinds of processes. And it was, I found it very easy to convince my, uh, my advisors that I wanted to do this work. And uh, that interest in research design stays with me to this day, the way that, uh, that advisors can help graduate students design uh, different kinds of research. And my current book, um, which is uh, in process is a manuscript right now that's under review with Chris Peterson is on research design. So the project um, has been with me in various forms for a long time. That's really interesting. I, I share a, a fascination with research design. I teach classes in ethnographic methods. And, and one of the things that really strikes me is the way in which anthropology has um, you know, shifted from sort of the the old village study to completely reconceptualizing how we think about the spaces that we go into and, and try to understand. And um, but it's also interesting that in some ways you had a, a, a almost a kind of traditional entry into the community, as it were, um, finding your way to become ultimately um, accepted and trusted by the people you were talking to. Yes. Yes. Um. Let me ask, uh, kind of turn to the the book a little bit here. Um, on the first page of the introduction, well, you, you caught my attention very quickly, and you, you make an interesting comment. You say that nature is not the working term for outer space, and I thought that was a that was a really interesting idea. And you kind of go on to talk about uh, people in human spaceflight programs don't really speak about the naturalness or the unnaturalness of space. And I thought this is a very important point that foreshadows one of the main threads that runs throughout the book that, um, you know, it's kind of an exploration of the ways in which the extreme otherness, I think that's your term of space, uh, has been imagined in terms of environmental systems of which humans are a part rather than being imagined as natural or unnatural spaces. 
I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about um, how you define the concepts of environment and systems as they relate to our imagining of outer space. And also, what do you mean by the term that you use, relational technology, and, and how does this concept connect to the idea of systems? Right. Well, thanks. Um, yeah, it's it's interesting. There's a paradox. And, and as we talk today, I think you'll probably hear me use the term contradiction and paradox over and over because I found indeed that the part of the way that space is imagined, part of its charisma is its extreme otherness, its charisma to uh, scientists and to nations trying to expand themselves or to redefine their national boundaries. That extreme otherness, that challenge of space um, is there. But what I actually found when I went into the field was that in in another way, that space was extremely the same. There was an extreme sameness between Earth and space. And that's what I encountered by doing a very common time-honored anthropological research tactic, which is to go in with a set of research questions and then at a point, maybe three months, four months, five months into field work to stop and take a look at the data, take a look at the transcribed interviews, take a look at all of the documents and information and visuals that one has been collecting over time and take stock of those questions. And I went in asking, I went in as in a kind of science and technology uh, spirit wanting to know if space was a part of nature, how is space, outer space being made into a part of earthly nature or nature in general? And also to understand the technology that, that was being used to, to do that. And what I found, and this is what anthropologists love to find, is that I was entirely wrong in that <laughs> the terms that my interlocutors were using instead of nature was environment. Everything was environment. And I quote a technician in the book who said, environment, 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 everything is environment. And I never found the word nature in any of my interviews. The other term that came up over and over again, instead of technologies or even references to the technical, was the term system. So here I was going and looking for nature and technology and finding environment and system as the as the common currency. Uh, these are the terms that are the current terms, the terms that provide bridges. And that uh, between disciplines and between objectives, and that became very interesting to me. So then I really began to consult environmental history and environmental anthropology, and I found absolutely no attention to outer space as an environment or the way in which it had been referred to as an environment beyond maybe, uh, you know, a few interesting um, explorations or acknowledgements of outer space in environmental history. But that really piqued my curiosity because what I began to find out when I looked at the archives was that the term environment was the spatial term being used in military space and civilian space work since the mid-century. So... Mm -hmm. Here was a, in terms of scholarship, there was a big gap. There was no environmental history of outer space, even though its use as, or its re- reference by engineers, scientists, and policymakers as an environment links it to the environmental history of the United States. It's a discourse. It's an activity. It's a, it's a national um, uh, ambition at the level of, the, of, of dominance and power that really is part of the history of the concept of environment in the United States, and there was nothing on this. So right at the time, Rachel Carson is is drawing people's attention to the environment as a political space requiring attention. The space program is busy using the term to conquer outer space and compete with the Soviet space program. So from a history of discourse point of view, I thought, wow, I need to look into this. I need to do this work. So that was that was what draw, drew me into it. And there was no real history of the material incorporation of space into Western social worlds. And yet the concept of environment was one of the concepts used to describe space and to create links between disciplines and break down boundaries between Earth and space. In space flight, in national policy, both are environments. 
and they are one big space. Yeah, it's really interesting. As, as I listen to you, you know, talk about this, it's, it strikes me how we use the term environment routinely and often don't give much thought to the sort of polysemic nature of the term. You know, on the one hand, it's used as green space, you know, the, right. the natural environment. But on the other hand, it's simply used to describe a context. Right. And, you know, that that's kind of interesting because the same term is getting used in these two different ways simultaneously and yet embedded in a very similar sort of ideology and discourse. Exactly. The, the term environment etymologically just means surrounding in French. Mm-hmm. And so if you look at a national space program, it is a bid to absolutely break down barriers about what counts as the national surrounds as what counts as the extension. The other term that I referred to, system, was a term being used that I also found at the time had no history. Uh, It has since, uh, there are some scholars who have since I started this work in 2004 and five have written some beautiful uh, histories of the system concept as a discursive and organizing concept in, in Western philosophical thought, literary thought, but at the time, I could find nothing on it, really. I, there was a, there's a beautiful book by Frank Golly that uh, has, is, refers to the history of the ecosystem concept. But the history of the term system was the biggest surprise that I found. And it's, it's, the, it's the work in the book that I think most people find useful in other forms of ethnography. Because what I saw with the term system and what I was interested in is what it was doing as a cultural term. Mm. We all understand that we use the term system to refer to a bunch of things that work together or something that functions together. And and that's a translation of it. But system, like any other word, has a political history. It has a a deep history that is connected to the powers or people that make it a dominant term and that use it in a certain way. So I traced it back to the 17th century uh, as a common currency term that connected the work of philosophers and natural scientists and between kinds of natural scientists later. And what was interesting about it is if you look at the history of the system term in in US history, or you look at thinkers that begin to use this term in the early 19th century, um, you see um, Frederick Douglass and uh, Alexis de Tocqueville, later uh, Marx, refer to systems and to bring into view the idea that of the systematicity of, of processes like slavery and the ways that those processes ended up creating the economic sphere of empire, spheres of empire and the economic um, circuits and conduits and connections. And the system concept is, is used as a kind of dominant term to refer to uh, things that, that fit together and things that don't fit together. And that's what I was interested in is how the, the, how the system concept could be used that way. So as, a, as uh, Frank Golly argues, the ecosystem term was invented by Alfred Tansley to allow scientists who were specialists in the living or the non-living to think about the ways that energies and material were exchanged and circulated and distributed. Now, if you hear those terms, you will not be surprised if I tell you that that there is not a coincidence, exchange, circulation, distribution, that there is a historical relationship between the rise of ecology out of economic thought. And there's a wonderful historian, Daniel Worcester, who wrote uh, a fantastic book called Nature's Economy about the rise of ecological theory out of economic theory, because eco just simply means oikos or home. So we can talk about this later, but you can see that I was really interested in giving the system concepts some history and understanding it as a form of common currency, which links European thought with European empire. So I was looking at the way the common use of the system concept at NASA to link people studying bodies and spacecraft and planets could all be linked with a political, with policy to expand the United States and to create dominant systems and to create a way of organizing how things can be connected or separated. So to give you an example, you know, the oil and gas industry likes you to think about how we're all connected by petrochemical things that make our worlds work and that the petroleum 
is an essential part of the U.S. economic and social system. But then when it comes to admitting that carbon emissions are systemic and have systemic effects, they deny it. So this is what I began to be interested in, the power to decide what is a system, what its boundaries are, and how things are made separate, is part of the history of the space program, which is perhaps the most ambitious attempt to systematize and create systemic links between the most extreme and difficult spaces in the solar system with Earth. And here's another paradox, right? So the space program is, produces a wondrous sense of connectivity, but it also produces national settler colonial expansionism. And it was this contradiction, the way that spaceflight systems thinking um, and the way that advocates of all different backgrounds from NASA could mobilize systems thinking to get people to acknowledge our connections, to acknowledge the earth as a fragile system of no boundaries, but also how systems thinking and systems engineering and system science could fuel the space race and space dominance and create regimes of empire and exclusion. That was my focus. So what I'm curious, what did your interlocutors at uh, NASA think about this? Because I'm, I'm going to guess, and I may well be wrong, but I, my guess is that when they think about system, they are thinking of it as really purely a, a technical um, you know, sort of way of thinking about the world rather than something that involves the social as you're describing it. You know, um, if, if, uh, if you uh, dig around um, in NASA, you can find a lot of people who see the connection. And I tried to provide examples in the book of when people use the system concept to critique uh, the government or to critique the political status quo of things. And they would also use, they would also be systems thinkers. And it was this connection that I was interested in because it could be a term of critique and it could be a term of frustration. It could also be just an everyday work term. And I was really interested in how people were able to do that and how passionate people were at NASA about their work as a way to solve systemic problems. So they understood systematicity, but they also thought that by participating in the space program, they were going to help to alleviate what they considered to be systemic problems on Earth. So it's it's a very interesting concept that way. Yeah, it's very interesting and obviously very complicated in the way it's being employed by people within NASA, clearly. Well, it's also, you know, it also informs everything in the United States from from this kind of technology to science education in the schools. The 2014 scientific standards uh, practices for how to teach children, how to understand their place in the universe. The number one term that's being used and what's being advocated is systems literacy, as they say. So it's to create a way for, to, to educate students to think of themselves as systems within a system, to think of the human body as a system and to think of its place within larger systems. And it's interesting to think about educating children to think about themselves as systems, because on the one hand, you can see the benefit to thinking of the connectivity. But on the other hand, if you teach children to think of themselves as systems, what does that do to other forms of identity? Um, such as religious identity, racial and ethnic identity, identity in different communities. It's a move to create a form of identity. Yeah, that's a, a really interesting thought. And, and again, as, as you're explaining this, it, it, one of the things that struck me is that also by kind of shifting over to a, a sense of identity that's, that's grounded in this concept of systems, we think of problems as being things that can be fixed. Like you can fix a problem with a, a car, you know, a car has its various systems and you just repair them. Um, and they, they take on this kind of very technical quality to them. And, and I think that's, you know, some of the way, as you describe it, that NASA of course approaches the, the movement into outer space. Oh, that's a great, that's an absolutely uh, perfect, um, recognition of, of something that's really key to this study, which is that the space program emerges um, as a kind of technocratic governance project. And 
the role of the technocrat, the role of someone who has that the power to to basically revitalize or rethink about governance and bureaucracy in terms of technology is absolutely what is going on here. And now um, I just saw this wonderful documentary the other day, The Social Dilemma. And if you listen to The Social Dilemma, the anguish of people that were are working in the social media and um, that the, the online connecting world are deeply, deeply upset basically about the way that the systems have been used and they use the term over and over. So there's a systemic problem. And as you identify, there is the need for a systemic fix. And so the system comes up as something that we're caught in, something that we are unable to get out of, and yet at the same time, something that connects us. So it is very much, I mean, to look at the faith in technology that is a part of our of the capitalizing schema in the United States, it fits very well with what you what you're identifying. That's a uh, brings me to maybe my my next question here, which is, um, you, you argue you know that claims related to space flight's value are often presented in terms of the spinoff of the value you know of spinoff value of technologies. And you make an interesting observation that these are grounded in evolutionist understandings of environmental extremity as a stimulant to progress. I was really intrigued by this because I think the connection between progress and evolution is a very common trope among scientists and engineers that are involved with space exploration. Um, I tend to hear very similar things when I talk with or read the work of uh, people who are involved in the um, scientific search for extraterrestrial intelligence or astrobiologists uh, is they try to justify the search uh, for intelligence on other worlds or for life on other worlds. And I'm kind of curious why, you know, about your thoughts on, on um, why evolution and technological progress tend to often be conflated when people involved with the space exploration justify their work. Um, and also sometimes talk about, uh, social things in terms of, of, uh, cultural evolution and tie that in with, you know, technology. I, as I read your, your book, I, I thought a little bit about Lewis Henry Morgan's ideas about uh, cultural mm-hmm. evolution, um, going through, what is it? Savagery and barbarism or not barbarisms first, I don't remember. But the point is that each one of his stages is tied to technological development. That's how he defines the stages. And so uh, I I was quite interested in that point in your book. Yes, thank you very much for asking about evolution and the relationship uh, between evolution and theories of progress and space exploration. Yes, indeed. There is a very mid-19th century almost classical Darwinian understanding of what outer space represents to the quote unquote human race in space exploration. And it should be, it's important to locate this in the the dominance of um, white Protestant uh, primarily, but um, the astronaut being a sort of uh, exemplar of a certain kind of uh, American normativity as um, a, a body or a person who represents the agent of progress, right? So it's based in this kind of idea of the struggling uh, body against the difficulties of the frontier environment, this kind of myth of the white settler colonial frontier myth in the United States, it's extended into the space program. And that is not to negate the fact that the space program is a very socially diverse at this point, much more diverse than it was at the mid-century program full of people who are bring to it a lot of different backgrounds and understandings and interest in space. But there is a deep and dominant understanding brought forward by the biology of 150 years ago that favors a kind of Darwinian or social Darwinian Darwinist view of progress and evolution as based in struggle and competition. And that there is a notion that technologies and bodies and the relationship between them can be accelerated in outer space 
or in the deep sea or in the underground in any of these extreme spaces. And that this is where the environment provides a forcing function. So this is systems thinking, environmental systems thinking about how extremity and struggle and difficulty can create the means for for forward movement and progress and and technological forcing function evolution. So that belief and that inspiration, because it's both things, very find it very much alive in the space program. And it it doesn't only take hegemonic forms of national expansionism. You can find it in space architecture, you can find it in space medicine, you can find it in advocacies for um, space futures by people who are seeing the ways that outer space or might imagine the ways that outer space technological advancement might lead to uh, more human cooperation, not just competition, might lead to the end of money, a la Star Trek, right? The the movement into a time and space when uh, multiple species are living together in harmony and people don't uh, don't exchange money anymore and there's no more war, at least on Earth. And you know you see these hopes and dreams related to the extremity of space. And I want to make it clear that it's it's very diverse. It's not just one point of view. It may stem from a kind of dominant Darwinian point of view, but a lot of people have different ways of looking at it. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50 percent off yeah it's 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 interesting that you you know bring up star trek because it it does uh somehow often loom in the background when, when i listen to uh astronomers talk about you know things related to astrobiology and uh, particularly when they talk about the, the possibility of finding intelligence somewhere else a, a very common kind of idea is that that humans are what they call an adolescent society and I don't really know what that means but uh, it seems to be typically tied to our, our level of technological development which is then often sort of transferred into moral or social development as you say very much along the lines of of the kind of social Darwinian ideas of the 19th and early 20th century so I I think it's a really uh, very important observation about kind of the way that the the thinking about the movement into space tends to be driven by some of these ideas. Yes, in fact, there is a very developmental, uh, human developmental model that also inspires a lot of a lot of spaceflight advocacy. And you'll hear spaceflight advocates say that that Earth is a cradle, and like babies, we need to get out of the cradle. You know, they use those terms of sort of tack back and forth between the frontier analogy. Uh, you know, the settler colonial analogies, or they might go to the human developmental analogies. But what's interesting about, I'm interested in your work with with SETI scholars, because in the moments that I found myself interacting with that community, I found it interesting that, and I don't know if you found this as well, that there was also a concern that the extinction of, of species of intelligent quote unquote, species in outer space would have been also hinge on the capacity to withstand being destroyed by their own technologies. And that is a very deep worry as well. I don't know if you found that. Yeah, that's a, that's a very common, I think, theme, the idea. And I think it's kind of tied to this notion of, of creating a, a sort of developmental way of thinking about 
social change in, in, in the sense that, um, in order for a society to kind of make it to the point where it, it is, um, long lived and however one defines that that's difficult to define. Um, it has to get through, uh, this, this point that we seem to think we're in right now where, um, and, and I say, we seem to think we're in because, um, you know, this is just where we are. We don't know what any other society might experience, but we are in a point where we, we have a variety of ways to threaten our own existence. And, um, the assumption tends to be in, in the SETI community that this is a natural process of, of development, just like teenagers have these kind of this period of, uh, where they're kind of a risk to themselves. And so we're, 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 we're a teenage society that's, uh, you know, busy and going out, driving our muscle car too fast. And so we might do ourselves in and we have to get past that and become adults in order to, um, survive. And so any civilization we might come across will have already gotten through that. And that's actually often used as kind of an argument in favor of their being, um, altruistic, which I think is a bit of a stretch. Um, well, it's, you're bringing up an interesting point. I mean, the term we, I mean, as an anthropologist, I have to step back and say, who are the we that we're talking about? Because, you know, a lot of the study folks, you know, do represent, you know, a sort of white middle-class technocratic or scientific background. And there is a sense of the naturalization of a bunch of processes, including um, capitalism, industrialization, imperialism, as part of a natural order of quote-unquote human progress and now we quote-unquote find ourselves in a mess and the question like we would have to ask if we were asking about the anthropocene here is who are the we that we're talking about and there's a there's a way in which there's a projection what i find interesting you know anthropologically speaking in terms of race gender and all of these uh categories that help me analyze and have a relationship with what I see in the world is the projection into outer space of models of, of the we that really only speaks of a certain group's historical responsibility. And it does interest me that there's a notion of that the, the we that they're describing, the sort of, the sort of contemporary settler colonial imperial, uh, Western legacy of industrialization that they might consider that to be an adolescent phase is a very interesting kind of self-critique that, that is interesting. It is, and and what's also intriguing there's a there's a sort of um, there's a totalizing and homogenizing tendency in thinking about that we that they then turn and use to to imagine the other that might be out there in space somewhere. They tend to treat you know, a civilization as a kind of single unified thinking thing. Exactly. Um, yes. And then don't think about, well, you know, we're actually rather complicated and diverse here on earth. Mm-hmm. Maybe they'd be the same way, you know, wherever else they are. Um, and there might be, you know, a, a multiplicity of voices rather than a single voice that might come from such a civilization. It, it It's fascinated me for a long time because it, it gets kind of sent sent in both directions towards our own world and and towards any world we might someday maybe run across um i i i think well i'm i'm already i can tell we could talk about this forever i i want to move on a little bit to um the next uh sort of topic which is is tied to this i think um in in chapter one you um talk about metasystems and and the making of spaceflight parts. And, and you write a, a really vivid passage that I'd like to read for our listeners. Um, you say, the Johnson Space Center's very landscape, when approached by Carr, analogizes colonial and technical systems building and their roles in the governance of U.S. human environmental relations. To get to the JSC campus from the freeway, you pass a sign marking the entrance to the city of Webster which declares itself the gateway to the future. At JSC, employees and visitors are greeted by frontier heritage analogy. A herd of Texas Longhorns grazes next to rockets in JSC's publicly accessible rocket park. The scene analogizes two American ages, two kinds of energetic power, and two kinds of modern spatial dominance, territorial and environmental. 
I thought that was a very provocative and interesting observation. You've, you've touched on it already a bit, and I, and I wonder if you could expand a little bit on this idea for the listeners and perhaps talk about how this ties in with another important theme in the book, the extension of the American frontier ideology to the process of expansion into space. And of course, something this is something that we don't see only at, at NASA, but also in science fiction, particularly in Star Trek. Yes, the frontier analogy. It was interesting for me to keep track of all the spatial terms that were being used by my interlocutors and when they were used, when one was used versus another. So I would keep track of when people would shift either in their conversations or in their uh, speeches or communications with one another or NASA's public affairs communications or the space advocacy groups that interact or that are sort of uh, boundaryless spaces between space agencies and um, NGOs and, and uh, NPOs that are interested in space advocacy, the ways in which Frontier would get used or not used. And it was it's very interesting, I noted, that the times when the Frontier analogy was most important to be invoked by people who were trying to make the case for space as the final frontier or space as the last frontier um, really was embedded in the American history of the frontier concept and the way that it has been a part of American political thinking, or I should say U.S. uh, elite political thinking for a long time, um, connected really basically to an economic vision of an endless colonizable frontier space that is terra nullius, right? The empty space, which is also tied very much to the justification of colonization by the Europeans who who landed in this world and declared it uninhabited. And there's a way in which that idea of a frontier that's that's open, that's empty, that's waiting for to be actualized in the world is an extremely powerful metaphor that doesn't get mobilized all the time. So when you're on the NASA Johnson Space Center or the Ames research sites, I would rarely hear people talk about the frontier. The frontier ideology was really mobilized to sort of inspire Uh, they thought that it would inspire people who were interested in what's the point of going to outer space? Why are we spending all this money? And it was the promise of this space that was out there with all these resources and all this possibility. But it's undeniably linked, of course, to the settler colonial project, to the unfinished project of settler colonial regime and expansionism in the United States. Yeah, that's a it's a really uh, you know, fascinating observation, and I, I think also the 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 need to justify this you know movement into space is something that always seems to be floating around in this. And and I've I've heard you know the this sort of pioneer ideology is is one thing, or the frontier ideology, and and increasingly now what we're hearing about is and again tied to the issue of the environment, the need for resources, natural resources. We need to mine asteroids because we're going to run out of uh, precious metals and things like this. And um, there's always this kind of expansion kind of mindset about what's going on. Uh, and I think you really captured that beautifully in the book. It's, it's a you know kind of theme that is always floating around in it. Um, building a little bit off of that idea um, and thinking about this, you know, process of systemization and, and, and NASA, you know, is, process that NASA's engaged in of environmental expansion as scientists and engineers and administrators and astronauts engage in moving the scope of what we think about as the environment well beyond our, our boundedness to the natural context of Earth. And I, I, I found myself thinking a lot about something that actually I, I've been on my mind for a long time, and your book really kind of brought this f- forward for me, is, is the way in which our concept of distances in space has has changed as a result of this this project um, of 
systemization and and sort of expanding the environment. And yeah, I got thinking about when I was I was a kid growing up in the nineteen sixties and. Um, the, the moon seemed like a very far away place and, and Mars was a vast distance into kind of a remoteness of outer space. And we don't really think about it so much that way anymore. I, I think as a result of, uh, of course, human, um, exploration to the moon and, and robotic exploration now all the way, well, really out of the solar system, the moon seems like it's right around the corner and, and Mars is often described as, as a neighbor. And I was wondering if you could talk about how, you know, the, this project of heading into the extreme has changed our conceptualization of space and our sense of human situatedness in the cosmos. Yes, I think that um, that, that notion of, of being connected, of having um, the distance be reduced through, basically through these scopic technologies that redefine a sense of scale and a sense of connectedness in in Western science, starting in the, you know, starting with Galileo and the telescope and extending into the development of the microscope so that you can have this seemingly direct connection with things at a distance that uh, didn't, didn't exist before. And now there's data being sent back from these robotic spacecraft and these probes so that there's this sense of a of a deeper and more profound environment or relational space than than was available um, publicly to to people to think about for a long time and one of the things that I think has been a wonderful consequence of the beginning of a space studies community within social science and the humanities is to watch for me is to see the interest and the, the focus now of young scholars of upcoming scholars in these fields on astronomy, on satellite technology, on uh, other forms of uh, near earth orbit, for example, as a space of, of, competition and a space of extension of economic and and um, scientific and national identities and and the geopolitics of earth not not ending at the surface that extends into the atmosphere and extends beyond that I think that's uh, to me one of the great um, benefits of watching new scholarship I'm thinking of um, Julie Klinger's work on the geopolitics of space, um, writing about the ways in which, you know, you can really not really, the geopolitical has been extraterrestrial and terrestrial for a long time, and it needs to be attended to that way, uh, that there's a multi-scalar dimension to geopolitics that's really important to understand. Um, I think of Hi'ilei, Julia Hobart's work on Hawaiian indigenous resistance to uh, colonial extensions, most particularly telescope building on Mauna Kea. And she talks about the ways in which telescope building can really extend the appropriation of indigenous sacred space, unseated indigenous sacred space into extraterrestrial space by naming things and also by what she calls the measurements of absence. So the ways in which this idea of space being open to being a resource or being appropriable is an extension of the idea of that on earth and that it's a colonial high ground in a certain way. And I think it's been, I think it's going to be really exciting to see new work coming out that, that brings into question some of the, some of the observations that you're making about um, what is distance, what is connection, what is scale, um, just as a result of being not just symbolically connected to the moon and Mars, but materially connected to these spaces and to asteroids and to the sun, solar energy, for example. I uh, There's a student in our university that's working on this in India and in really bringing, keeping the sun in focus as an object that belongs in the story of solar energy when oftentimes the sun doesn't even come into our understanding of solar energy. So 
So I, I think that collapsing of a sense of of separation is really one of the wonderful things that comes out of asking these questions. Do you have any thoughts on on you know why it seems to have taken so long for social scientists to turn their attention and particularly anthropologists to turn their attention to this topic? Yeah, you know, I was thinking a lot about this the other day. I, I was invited by a fantastic group of graduate students at the New School to um, to have a conversation with them about the extraterrestrial as a kind of space that could be brought into their work, um, and more so than than before. Like, how, how is it that you know my my talk was sort of focused on how can we make how can we break down this binary that is Western construction anyway of a binary of the terrestrial and the extraterrestrial and really just sort of bring back into the frame into our research design and into our ways of asking questions these the quote-unquote extraterrestrial which which in a way if you think about what it is to live on a planet is never disconnected from us and I think I think I came to the conclusion or I'm, I'm sort of exploring the conclusion right now that Anthropologists were indeed interested in in social perceptions and relationships to outer space objects and things, but that was called cosmology, and the focus was on the symbolic dimension, not the material dimension. So I think what space studies does is to keep together in the same frame both the material and the symbolic dimensions of social relationships with outer space so that it's not just that the sun and moon symbolize something but that there's an actual ecosystemic or ecological if we want to use those terms relationship between human life animal life plant life and and what we what we call the extraterrestrial yeah i think you you talk about this in part in relation to what you refer to as the eco-biopolitics of space medicine when in chapter two, when you're talking about that. And I, I was quite intrigued by how you developed the concept of embodiment in relation to the, the way in which the, the physical bodies, the, you know, these material things are, are systematized in, in NASA. And I thought that was a, a really interesting idea. And, and I wonder if you could talk a little bit about this in relation to the uh, notion of space normal bodies that you develop. Yeah, so really the, the some of the most fascinating things I saw happen at NASA were around the way the human body and the human being per se were understood as systems. And there is a remarkable model of human of the human body, of human embodiment at NASA that is unbounded in a way. I remember vividly sitting at Mission Control and looking at a, at a diagram taped on the desk in front of me of that looked like a bunch of squiggly lines and intersecting things and there were human body parts and machine parts and I could not for the life of me, figure out what this thing was. It took me a long time to figure it out. And it really was a model of the deeply interconnected relationship between the human body and the spacecraft and the ways in which biomedical engineers and anyone involved with keeping living organisms alive in outer space had to really rethink the idea of the human body envelope as a boundary. And space work absolutely breaks that down. There is a deep understanding of the fact that the human body and the environment and anything else around it are really interconnected. And so in order to keep things alive, you have to really be aware of the interaction between all of the things in this enclosed miniature space in which every element of the environment is created every molecule of of that's floating around every air molecule everything that is eaten every water molecule is brought up there deliberately and in a state of recycling and in a state of interaction and that was that was just profound i've never i don't think there's in the United States thinking of workspaces, I don't think there's any other workspace that I can think of in which there is absolute, in, uh, an absolutely in-depth relationship 
understood between the human body and maybe the entire galaxy. <laughs> it's incredible. That, that's that's uh, just really fascinating. I, I had never really thought about it quite that way, but it, it of course it makes sense because they're they're dealing with this as you describe it as a, a solar ecosystem in which the human body has to be able to function in a variety of different in, environments and contexts. And um, this is something that actually really captured my attention when you talked about this idea of the solar ecosystem in, in part because uh, you know, I have sort of two veins of work, but um, one is in the SDS area. The other is, is dealing with rural Japan where I've done my field work over most of my career and I've done a lot of work on entrepreneurial ecosystems and, and looking at you know, some of these same kind of questions. How do, how do identities, how do bodies, how do people fit into these kind of systems that, that are, um, in this case, oriented around the concept of, of things like economic development and entrepreneurialism? And I, I was wondering if you could you know, re maybe reflect a little bit on that idea and, and also wondering if you might give some thought to the idea that the solar ecosystem itself is is beginning to move into becoming a kind of entrepreneurial ecosystem. And I ask this because it seems to me at least like uh, low earth orbit is increasingly being configured as a kind of environmental for entrepreneurial activity as we see things like, you know, SpaceX and um, and of course, you know, there are all the satellites that get put up um, and Blue Origin and, you know, this kind of movement into space not for the purposes of exploration per se, but for the purposes of, of um, economic activity. Uh, and I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that. Yeah, definitely. And I think just to segue from what you said before, you know, and, and what we were talking about before, I think there's, this is where the paradox comes in, that this high-tech enterprise that takes a lot of money and a lot of resources uh, paid for in large part by the American tax and uh, linked to military technologies and linked to militarization has this deeply paradoxical effect as well of being um, very illuminating in the ways in which if you work in directly in space work and you're trying to keep beings alive in space, you're well aware of the impact of human bodies and human activity on the environment because the environment is a built environment. It's the environment of the spacecraft that, that needs to be maintained and needs to function. And there's this interfunctional relationship between the body and the environment. And there's a lot of care and concern that goes into uh, maintaining that relationship and maintaining that equilibrium. But when it comes to the ethics of this extractive goal of going into space and extracting resources and bringing them back to earth, there's a lot of paradoxical visions in that there's this paradoxical vision of ending ending environmental degradation on earth by stopping mining and stopping extraction on earth in this dream of doing so in outer space and uh and basically doing all of that kind of mining and extraction in the abiotic arena of outer space and having this garden of eden on earth but what always gets overlooked in all of that is just what kind of economy are we talking about? What kind of economy would this be supporting? What kind of social hierarchies, exclusions and inclusions this would be supporting? And um, there has been, I think, some really interesting contemporary science fiction that is really um, The Expanse, for example, if anybody listening has seen that you will see a really intriguing exploration of what happens when you offload into outer space inequalities around people who mine resources in space and who are the workers versus the people who enjoy the spoils of that on space and on Earth and the outsourcing of militarization to other planets. It's a very interesting um, representation of this problem of what kind of economy are we talking about. And I just would say that the reason I write about a solar ecosystem is exactly because what I'm trying to do in that chapter is to remind 
uh, people of the relationship between economy and ecology in Western thinking and the ways in which those two ideas are very, very bound up with one another. And a lot of the words and concepts in ecology are borrowed from economics, from from uh, Western economic theory. And therefore, there's a lot of ways in which there's um, the importation of those kinds of ideas of extraction and exchange and all of that. And uh, I, I just want to call attention to the, to, to sort of add to the understanding of outer space, not as just a geopolitical space of more militarization, but also of, of an economic dream. And low earth orbit is definitely an eco system in the sense that it is, its problems revolve around relations, the relations between things in it, but also it is very, it is deeply economic and it is deeply unequal and it is um, restructuring geopolitics in a certain way. And that's, you know, I really am interested in, in what you're, what you're pointing to here about entrepreneurialism in space. Uh, there is so much to talk about in this book. It, it, uh, as you know, we're moving, we've moved through a variety of different topics here. And I, I think we've only touched the surface of what, what is a, a really, you know, profound, um, I, I think example of thinking about this idea of the relationship between humans and, and this space that goes beyond our, our planet. And, uh, you, you've really just, I, I, you know, I can't say enough great about the uh, book because I really do think it's it's a, a really uh, insightful look into what's happening in the process of, of humans really moving into space. And um, I think what I'd like to do is wrap up our discussion of the book uh, by asking you, um, you know, uh, what you would like listeners most, your future readers, to take away from the book. What, what's the thing that, that really kind of is is the driver for you on that? Well, thank you, John, and thank you so much for your uh, detailed engagement with the work and, and the wonderful questions. It's been a fantastic conversation, and I'm really grateful to you for um, for taking it so seriously and reading so carefully, and, and I really appreciate it. And I think, I think what I would like, maybe if there was nothing else, I think I would like uh, the readers or the listeners here to... Uh, be interested in the question of of what kinds of relations we or they or any group can be inspired to imagine by thinking about what space flight in its paradoxes, in its wondrousness and in its extractiveness and in its, its colonialism, but also in its open space of speculation to be inspired by the the tools and the technologies and the ways of thinking that that the environmental and systems focus of space flight offers beyond its appropriation by governments or by space capitalists that it it's a space of wonder around trying to think about the scopes and scales and forms of relationships that are possible. And I'm hoping that there's a way of thinking about that possibility by thinking about the most extreme or the most uh, deeply complex and entangled practice of relationality that, that there is in the technical domain, which is what I found by looking at human spaceflight. Thank you. That is, uh, I think that's a really wonderful way to kind of summarize um, what I think is really central in the book. And um, I, this has been a, an enlightening conversation about, again, what I, I think is a, a wonderful book. And uh, kind of to bring us to a close, I'd like to ask, what, what's up next? Could you talk a little bit about your current research? And, and you did a little bit for a few minutes uh, ago, but uh, what are your plans for the future um, in, in terms of your work? Well, I'm I'm just really um, excited to continue the work um, with my colleague Kristen Peterson on uh, research design and trying to make um, some, a handbook available to students and anthropologists and anybody interested in ethnographic design and how to systematically step by step 
engage with and imagine a research project. And so that is a near and dear um, project to my heart because it's related to my interaction with the wonderful graduate students that I um, have been so lucky and continue to be so lucky to interact with at UC Irvine. Uh, and also colleagues involved in thinking, rethinking methods and rethinking um, uh, research activity and how to be more collectively focused as researchers instead of this lone individualized research, how to be um, more supportive and more collective in our work. And I'm also uh, working in Southern California, taking the systems idea and questions about systematicity into the water world here in Southern California, where uh, there is a very extensive water recycling um, structure, infrastructure here, and looking, I want to look deeper and in, in a more terrestrial space at watersheds, which are spaces of systematicity, which are dynamical spaces, and looking at the politics of a watershed, not as a space, but as a dynamic. So that's what I'm up to now. That sounds great. I, I couldn't help thinking as you were describing uh, research methods and, and the importance of having uh, an understanding of, of a systematic approach to doing research. Mm -hmm. If one, one couldn't turn around some of the things that you explored in this book on, on the endeavor of, of research itself and, and the way in which systematizing what we do in terms of trying to understand the world is, is really almost like a loop. It's a product of that way of seeing the world in terms of systems. And so. Yes. Well, uh, research is a relational technology. It's a way we build relations. And so, you know, even if I'm critiquing systems on the one hand, I also think we can learn something about thinking about scope and scale and these relationships that um, taking a critical look at, at systems can help us, help us illuminate. Well, Dr. Olson, thank you so much for taking the time to join me on the Science, Technology, and Society channel of the New Books Network. Uh, it has been a real pleasure talking with you. I've enjoyed the conversation, and I encourage our listeners to uh, go out and get a copy of this and read what is a, a really um, extraordinary uh, entry into uh, ethnographic research and into the area of science, uh, science, technology, and society studies. Thank you very much. Thank you, John. Swimsuit? Check. Sunscreen? Check. Phone charger? Check. Don't forget to pack the 5-Hour Energy. It fits great in a pocket or carry-on, and the alert feeling will help you arrive ready for anything. Now get 20% off when you use code 5HETRAVEL at 5HourEnergy.com. Expires April 30th. One-time use only. Not valid with other discounts. Remember, visit 5HourEnergy.com and use code 5HETRAVEL to save 20%.